Welcome to the Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast, where business leaders tell their stories and share their insights. All our guests have a personal connection with Nottingham Business School. So listen, learn, enjoy and share. Welcome to another episode of the Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast with Lee Mike Sassy. Professor Edward Peck has been Vice-Chancellor of Nottingham Trent University since 2014, and his leadership has coincided with a period of unprecedented success. In the last nine years, the number of students has increased from 23,000 to almost 40,000. NTU is now the fifth biggest university in the UK. At the same time, Trent has won five National University of the Year titles, and for the last four years, it has attracted more UK applications than any other university. In simple terms, NTU is consistently the most popular university in Britain. Which is why, after more than 30 episodes of this leadership podcast, we've invited our own leader uh, to join us to share his insights. So, Professor Edward Peck, CBE, Vice-Chancellor and President of Nottingham Trent University, welcome to the Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast. It's nice to be here, Mike. The most popular university in Britain. It's a great line. What's the secret? Well, I think the secret is partly about fit. Finding an organisation that needs something you can offer and finding a way of, of, of making that happen. And also recognising that typically institutions, organisations are good at one of two things. So either they've really got the vision and uh, as someone, I think, expressed this in Psalms in the Bible, where there is no vision, the people perish. If you don't know what you're trying to achieve and haven't constructed a sense of common purpose with your people, well, you're not going to get as far as you need to. But the second expression is from William Blake, which is, they who would do so, they who would do good, must do so in small particulars. So it's about making that vision absolutely real every day of the week in every action people take as far as you can. And my experience is that institutions can do one or the other, and leaders often can do one or the other. And I have practiced really hard doing both and enabling institution to recognise the importance of both at the same time and, and weaving them together so that the vision uh, compels people and the particulars they then undertake, the small details, the tasks, the operational practices, absolutely support that vision. So you were born in Scamsdale in Lancashire. Uh, only the second person in your family to go to university. You're now in charge, as I've said, of the country's fifth biggest university. Did you always know you'd be a leader? No. I mean, does anyone? I was brought up uh, on a farm uh, in uh, rural Skelmersdale. And so much of my um, childhood was spent relatively isolated. My siblings, including my brother, who was the first person to go to university, he left home before I was born. So... Uh, I was quite a lonely child, so I was mostly leading myself and my imaginary friend, which isn't very hard. <laughs> Who was that imaginary friend? Um, <laughs> it was whoever he or she needed, actually usually he, uh, whoever he needed to, I needed him to be on that particular occasion. He always came second, though, in those things. Um, and actually, that was, that was quite challenging as, a, as an upbringing. And then when we were about, I was about 10, uh, our farm was compulsory purchased to build Skelmersdale New Town on. And so we moved into the centre of Skelmersdale and I, I, I went to you know, much more social interaction with my peers at school, out of school hours. And that was the making of me. I think that's the moment at which I started to develop some social skills. 
Um, but I still sometimes catch myself as being quite an introvert. Um, of course, no one needs an introverted organisational leader. Completely, <laughs> completely pointless. Yeah. Uh, so I have to work really hard on being extrovert uh, and engaged and engaging. I find it really quite tiring. There are some people who get real energy and life off other people because they are real extroverts. And I'm not like that. Um, what it showed me, and what I think hopefully shows other people, is if you have got slightly introverted, you know, slightly um, sort of stand, up, stand apart sometimes approach to life, you can work on that and you can develop a way of interacting as a leader, which looks like an extrovert uh, and has all the characteristics of an introvert. You just need to look after yourself. You need to give yourself time and space to, to recharge the batteries that aren't charged off other people the way sometimes an extrovert leader gets that charge off other people. So I think often people assume that certain personality types are better or worse at being leaders. I don't buy that for a second. It's about recognising in yourself what the resources you've got, what can you develop, what do you think works when you watch other people being an effective leader that you can bring into your own leadership performance. Um, so I think that's uh, that's what I got from those two experiences of being having two very different childhoods in one childhood. Well, wait a minute. I, whenever I look at you in public, you unlike other people who have very big jobs, always look as to me as though you're having the time of your life. <laughs> Is that to do with this specific job rather than just being in charge? Well, normally I'm having quite a good time at the university because normally I'm working with some fantastic people, some brilliant students, some fantastic stakeholders. So it's it's no, 85% of the time, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, but I've had to learn to enjoy that public performance. It wasn't something that came to me naturally, particularly in my earlier years. And I think often people look at leaders and think, where do they get that confidence from? Where do they get that ability just to, to respond spontaneously, to interact with people in ways that you can't necessarily predict? And actually, it's just about watching it and practice. There's nothing magical about it. It's about watching it and practice. And crucially, when you do something and you reflect on it afterwards, which you really should, you're always looking for how could it have been better and different? What could I have done that moment that would be more effective than what I did and how I responded? And that constant iteration of how you develop your leadership style, how you develop that confidence, that ability to um, participate in the moment, will just get stronger and stronger. If you keep on doing the same thing and don't reflect like that, you're always going to get the same result. Okay. Is this a victory for academic study? Because back in 2009, you and a fellow author wrote an academic book about leadership entitled, unsurprisingly, Performing Leadership. Has that, has the research that you did for that book really informed your leadership in the way that you're just outlining there? It's, I think it's a bit of both. I think I come to the conclusion that psychological accounts of leadership, which focus on the individual in the abstract, only tell about 20% of the story. Now, leadership is a sociological activity. It's about interacting with people in systems. Um, and, and therefore, when I came to do the book, we were looking at what can we learn from literature, which should tell us more about how to think about um, the systemic aspects of leadership rather than the, rather than the me part of it. And the way to illustrate that is often I ask myself, not what do I want to do, which is what classically what you think leaders do, but most leaders, I think, and certainly successful ones, ask us the question, what does the organisation or this situation need me to do? Completely different question. And the, the purpose of the book about performing leadership is recognising that once you're in a sector and understand your sector, whatever it is, manufacturing, universities, whatever, 
you have to have a repertoire, develop a repertoire of responses that cover most of the things that are likely to come up. And therefore, you have a choice you can make about how you respond in certain situations, um, which will move the situation forward, which will make the situation more beneficial, um, more productive, more constructive. And so that's what I basically argue in the book. It's, it's not about the internal you. It's about what are you finding in this context that you need to respond to that will have the most beneficial impact on that situation. But as you say, that runs contrary to popular belief. You just said 20% there that you think no, that... That's a guess. Yeah, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> I won't hold you to it. But I'm saying, but all, all, all the... Um, all, all other successful leaders are perhaps inadvertently doing what you describe. I think so. But it's it's much easier to talk about me and what I did than what it was the other people did in the position we found ourselves in and how my contribution was part of that much bigger whole rather than claiming it's about what's something intrinsically I always do. Now, it may be the things that you intrinsically do that are phenomenally helpful and you shouldn't stop doing them. But I'd be amazed in most leaders' careers if that's that's always the case. There are certain situations you have to be able to do something different. I often say to colleagues, you know, being yourself is not enough as a senior leader. You've got to be able to be something else the institution or the um, or the situation requires. And the other thing I'd say about being a leader in response to your question, you know, did I ever think I'd be one? I never claimed to be a, a leader. I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I have a role as vice chancellor. I'm a manager which gives you certain authority and power, which is really important to being a leader. I think leadership is attributional. It's about other people saying you're a leader. It's about having followers. It's like saying that I am trustworthy. You wouldn't do it, would you? <laughs> being trustworthy has to be something something somebody says about you. If you say it about yourself, you just sound like you're not very trustworthy. <laughs> and I feel some of you about leadership. You have to, you have to develop your relationship with other people. Again, it's relational, not individual. It's relational that they feel moved to, f- move to follow you. And, and one of the important things that I've learned about leadership and about organizational life is that, that you have to mobilize commitment. So if you look at our strategy at NTU, it's either 12 words long or it's about 600 words long. Because if you write more than that, no one's going to read it, no one's going to be bothered about it. I mean, the people in the organization aren't going to read it, are they? I mean, 12 words, I think most of our folk remember 12 words. And, and what you're trying to do in that collective and and um, in process, we engage lots of people in defining what those 12 words should be, for instance. You're trying to mobilise commitment. You're trying to get to position where other people are signed up and committed to what you've mutually agreed to do, as you are. Because once you've mobilised commitment in a certain direction, lots of stuff can happen that you couldn't make happen as a manager. So does that mean, when you talked about the importance of, 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 of people who follow you, does that mean you can only be a good leader if you have good followers? The only reason that NTU is successful with you as the, I'll call it, I'll say it again, nom- as the nominal leader is because the, everybody else here has bought into that, has worked out how to follow? Sufficient have bought into it. I wouldn't claim everybody has. Might that be <laughs> we'll, come, we'll come to that, yes. Okay, we could come to that. <laughs> I have a, so you asked a question about, about the book. So I have a... Th- I have to have a theoretical position about what I'm doing. I don't articulate it very regularly, but I think I know what I'm doing most of the time. It's rooted in some theory of organisational development, organisational leadership. That's absolutely right. Um, and part of that is about, about enabling people to feel they've got a, there's something about what they're doing that connects with their core values. And if people don't um, feel it connects with their core values, they're probably going to do something else. 
But it's not it's not just about that. You have to give people a clear. It goes back. So that's about the vision, mobilizing commitment. It goes back then to small particulars. You've got to give people objectives, and I'm very committed to an appraisal process, which connects what the vision says with what you require from that particular individual, and they have to do it properly. We're very unusual as a university having a very well-developed appraisal system, but having quite an increasingly well-developed individual performance management system. Because my view is no good having the vision with people if on a Tuesday afternoon they're not doing at a high level what you need them to do. Um, so I think that I think those two things have to mesh together. Okay, so let's go back to yourself in very practical terms. There's a real public, and this fits in with what you've said actually. But so let's 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 explore it further. There's a real public service ethos running through your leadership career. You were originally an NHS graduate trainee. You went on to be director at the Centre for Mental Health Services. You had a variety of, of senior posts in higher education, and, and as I've already mentioned, you were recently appointed the government's national student support champion. Is it important for you that your leadership makes a difference? Yes, absolutely it is. I think any leader would have to believe that. And the people around who are following have to believe the leader believes it makes a you difference. You have to persuade them of that. Yeah, you have to You have to just absolutely enact it day in, day out, that this really matters. And when I say enact, this is not, this is not a kind of um, theatrical um, uh, position. It's just you have to behave in ways that are completely consistent with what it is you are articulating, the values and the, the purpose of the organizations it's more about people who are suffering disadvantage that's the key driver so um, in mental health services uh, my real my real passion was creating community mental health services and closing the old Victorian asylums which virtually don't exist anymore and I ended up leading an organization which was run by the department worked the Department of Health and Government uh, which worked out a way of doing it because no one else has worked out a way of doing it before. We did, and we, you know, I, we, we were involved in closing tens of them uh, over, the, over the years. So that was about the marginalisation of people with serious mental illness. Uh, of course, they're typically poor and marginalised, etc. Um, more recently, and one of the key things about the shared mobilised meditation NTU is we are you know, very mobilised around social mobility and enabling people to transform their lives. And so that, I think that's the thread that runs through my career. Okay, so that leads very nicely on to one of the most remarkable statistics I've heard you use on a number of occasions, and so it's quite obvious that you are very proud of it, um, that you that 25% of NTU students are from the poorest 10% of households in Britain, and I think that means that 10,000 students from are from homes with an annual disposable income of less than 12,000 quid. I was going to ask you, what leadership challenges does that pose for an academic institution? But also, presumably, that's a, the natural the natural destination for your ethos. It is. It is. And what's interesting about those students is they're predominantly not local. They come to Nottingham Trent because either they or their parents or their careers advisors, their advisors at schools, have told them something about this university might work for you. Uh, and they come from all over the UK. Uh, to study at Nottingham Trent, and that becomes self-reinforcing because if you if you create that ethos and you really support students well and they thrive, they tell their friends, they tell their peers, and it gets onto a virtuous a virtuous spiral. And some of our growth in numbers, I think, has absolutely been a consequence of that virtuous spiral, and it's been reflected in the awards, um, which we you know have, some of which we, we we applied for, but most of them have been given to us spontaneously by people who wanted to recognise that. 
we're very good at what we do. And one of the things we say about NTU, I say about NTU, because it's all about telling stories. Remember, you've got 4,500 people working for you. You're not going to meet most of them most of the time. You've got to tell stories that you can get across easily and straightforwardly. And one of them is that we always do the right thing. And if we're going to do something, we do it well. So we've just entered the second year on the run now, the top 10 of the University Sports League. may sound a small thing, but we were 17th when I arrived. And my view is we're going to do sport. Let's do it properly. Let's be really good at it. Um, and this thing about constantly telling stories and repeating them, because people, particularly you know, outside but inside the organisation, aren't always listening to every word. They're always, they aren't always paying attention. You've got to have a series of very short, simple stories that you just keep on telling. And one of those stories... Uh, is about Mansfield. Yes. Now, Mansfield, um, your colleagues say that, well, it's it's some, they say that uh, the, the decision to go to Mansfield is something um, which would definitely never have happened if it hadn't been for you. You 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 drove it through. Um, Mansfield campus, 500 students, £10 million of investment in a town that had never previously had a university. So what does that project say about your leadership? It says that I I, I come to understand the motivations and, and affiliations of most of my colleagues, and, and that's what shaped the strategy. So I knew that if we get the story right, um, we could make this work. And it, and it wasn't about writing a business case. In fact, the business case was a bit sketchy. Um, it was more about mobilising commitment. The story was quite simple. We think we're a university that's really good at social mobility in Nottingham, and 15 miles up the road, are two towns, Mansfield and Ashfield, which have some of the lowest levels of social mobility in the country. That's not our responsibility, but what are we going to do about it? That was the question. The first move was to, was to work with the college to give us their uh, give us some space, their university hub. We turned it to NTU campus. And after that, and the, the, because there wasn't particularly a business case, apart from let's get a presence on the Mansfield College campus, which we did, it's all gone from there because people want to do things. And it's social prescribing, it's getting kids ready for school in prime, you know, before primary school. It's all sorts of things. I have nothing to do with me thinking, blimey, if we just get a footprint in Mansfield, we'd, we'd be able to do something for that community. It's spun off because people want to make it happen. Um, and that's about mobilising commitment. And your strategy is what most people do. It's not what a few people write down. Okay, but you whispered there about a sketchy business case. Um, uh, but is it... <laughs> I'm going to ask the question. Is NTU successful... Therefore, it can afford to have this social ethos, or is the university successful precisely because you've built these community ties? There's a famous quote, isn't there, uh, from Abe Simpson, which asked a question. The answer is, a little from column A and a little from column B. <laughs> and I think, I think that's the answer to that question. I mean, there is the business case. I mean, we did, you know, you have to have some sense about, you know, this might over time be something that will be self-sustainable. Um, but in a way, although the amount of money we spent sounds like a lot of money, and it is a lot of money, for a university that wants to do the right thing, it was the right decision to make, even though you know you could have challenged the base the basis on which the business case or the you know the, the investment was made. In fact, we are already uh, starting to show a return from our investment in Mansfield much sooner than we anticipated. I mean, we launched the campus in Mansfield in 2020. You know, why let a pandemic get in the way of a really good idea? Yeah, it it it, <laughs> it, it, it seems that it seems that. Uh... Primarily by design, but perhaps also through, look, everything has worked so far. Why is that? Oh, no, I would say everything's worked. We, there are some things that we just quietly moved <laughs> onto the carpet, Mike, that haven't quite worked so well. I mean, I, I suppose you just, it's the really difficult thing to teach. It's about judgment and about wisdom, which is why 
I think people are often quite well advised not to rush their career. So I was in my mid-50s when I became a chief executive. And people say, well, have you done this before? My response was, I don't feel ready. I don't feel ready to take on that responsibility. I don't feel the need to take it on yet. I want to know, know exactly what I'm going to do. And I want to find the right place. So I think um, a lot of it's just about wisdom. And after, after I'd spent 30 years kicking around organisations I had by then, you just learn a lot of stuff just by watching and thinking and reflecting, don't you? Well, you do. But let me let me come down to one, one other nitty gritty here that always makes me stand back and look at it and think. So across the, universe, across the, uh, across the UK, 150 universities are currently in dispute with their staff. Industrial action, pay, pension provision, you're familiar with it, but not at NTU. You've managed to broker, hammer out some kind of local agreement with the staff. How, how do you manage that? Um, well, it's... We're the only university, I think, in, in the last nine years, how long I've been here, that has had no industrial action at all. And sometimes things just take time, which is why I'm always puzzled by leaders who want to move on quickly. If you find the right place and it's a good fit, don't assume going somewhere else is going to work for you again. Um, and it's about building relationships. These things just take time. I think people trust me. I think we're transparent. I think we're seen as being fair. I think we're seeing as sharing colleagues' values. Um, and we got to a position a couple of years ago where the national offer that was being made was not as good as the offer NTU could afford to make to our people. And so we had a conversation with our trade unions and with broader, broader staff, and, and we decided to try and go for a system where we negotiated our pay and other conditions locally. And that's what we did last year. We did, we did it this year. Uh, we are paying slightly more than the national uh, award, and we're giving you know, non-consolidated bonuses to most of our folk because, again, we can afford it in the year. Um, again, it's just the right thing to do I mean, because we wouldn't have this money if colleagues hadn't earned it by, the, by the, their talent and commitment and hard work. So that's how we did it. And I, what puzzles me is why the universities aren't doing it. So that was, that was quite a far-sighted move. Um, and I, I'll, I'll go back to the theory here and I'll say, look, I've spoken to several of your senior colleagues who say that because you have a, a, a very clear view of what needs to be done, because you know your mind, then you can be a really tough taskmaster. Aside from that, how how I've got the front front end of that statement. How does a leader establish such clarity? Hmm. I think it's about discipline. Actually, I think we have a public affairs uh, person. This is the inner workings of NTU. So we had a public affairs person for about um, about five or six years, and much of my and the institution's national reputation is based upon. The work that he has facilitated, not from that. Oh, goes. he's good. Who is he? Give me a name check. Well, I, 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 I could tell you who he is. I'll tell you later. Um, he's very good, and he's taught me an awful lot actually about about story part of this. And his view is: is look, just get a story, get, get an account, a narrative, as it's now called often. Get a narrative, one which reflects what you want to do, reflects what your colleagues want to do, which sums up the organisation. Just keep on telling it and exemplify it. And so one of the brilliant things about the Mansfield, and which I could see from, you know, right from the outset, was if we get this right, it's a brilliant re-energising of that social mobility, transforming life story. So that everything you do, you don't just have to tell the story, you have to be able to point to things that show the story really matters, and that's, that's the next part of the story. And I use the story deliberately, but not because I think you know, there's anything fictional about it, but it has to capture people's imagination. You know? It can't have to be boring you know, or, or highfalutin. It's got to be really clear, down to earth, understandable in about 30 seconds, exemplified in the next 30 seconds. 
And if that's clarity, well, that's clarity. Am I a hard taskmaster? I think I'm phenomenally loyal to people who I rate and who work hard and who are committed. And the corollary is also true. Okay. I think I understand that. But you have to be very um, convinced that you're right. Yeah. Well, if you talk to my senior colleagues, they will say, you know, they'll, we do have the, you know, come off it, Edward sort of moments and, you know, things get changed. Um, but quite often what we decide to do is a, is a product of a fairly robust conversation. I mean, very friendly, robust conversation. I, know I will not put up with kind of tantrums or, or bad behavior. And I do not accept people criticizing colleagues when something goes wrong in the organization and say, look to what you did that could have been better. I'll deal with what other people did. You know, that just, so I'm, you know, I really have a strong hold on a sense of collegiality. Um, but ultimately people do look to you to know, and the longer you're around, and the more you make good calls in excess of poor calls, which, you know, I think, you know, we'd be, I would be, I've been quite good at, I think people get more confident, actually, this is a good call. Okay. And, and, the, and, you know, when you make a poor call, sometimes, you know, you make, make the old poor call, then people are more forgiving, or you can explain why that was a poor call, and what can we learn from that? Well, I'm going to come down to an almost a throwaway line, which I've heard some of your colleagues, some of your colleagues make, and it, it harks back to that collegiality, that trust. So many of the senior leaders at NTU, uh, I could go through a list of them here. I've actually got a list of about seven, because I just want to make sure I was getting this right. Um, it includes yourself. Send their children here. I mean, yeah. I think you you presented your own daughter with her degree. That is. What is what is what does that all say about about your leadership? Well, it wasn't that I said to my daughter, I'm the leader, I'm, I'm the BC of this I'm university. sure that wasn't the kid. You've, you, you've got to be loyal in there. You've got to go there, kid. Um, but now, it's not just yourself. It's, it, no, uh, it's the, 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 one, one of your very senior colleagues sent all three of his daughters. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, because it's, I think it's because this is a great university. And it's a university for everyone's kids, not somebody else's kids. Um, you know, you, it's really important that you believe you know, not only in the social mission, but the educational quality and research activity of, of, in my case, a university. You've got to believe as a leader in what you're doing can help anyone if it if it's the right fit. Um, my daughter's now gone to a, a career in a museum um, consultancy, and she did museum and heritage studies here, so it's been a direct connection. So, you know, the, the vocation, the vocational nature of the university is what I think sold it to my daughter and my senior colleagues. It's actually, typically daughters for some reason. Um, because it connected what they want to do next in their life. And I think that's absolutely what NTU is about. And why shouldn't anyone's daughter want to take advantage of that? You keep on to you mentioned it again there, you keep on talking about fit, 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 fit. Yeah. How does a leader, a would-be leader, establish the organisation for which she or he will be that fit? Well, you have to do quite a lot of due diligence, I think. Uh, listen carefully to what you're being told when you apply, what you're reading. And the closer you get, if you're clear in your own mind what you think you're good at and what you want to achieve, you'll start to see it, smell it as you get close or, or not. And then you'll. And of course, I, being vice chancellor of, of Nottingham Trent University, um, uh, it's a decision not to be a vice chancellor, not just my decision, their decision as well, not to be a vice chancellor of a different sort of university. So somebody once said to me of a different sort of university, um, you know, you're not one of them, Edward. Because, you know, your first career is in the NHS. You haven't come through that kind of traditional research route. You know, no matter what a good leader you are, 
their expression, not mine. It's you know, you know, you just you just you just don't you know they won't, they won't accept you because you you know you're not say so you're not one of them. Whereas here, coming from a, a professional background, clearly I have, have a research history. I have taught. You know, I've published. There's a much broader spread of people at the institution. Actually, my background speaks to most of the people here. So that they, I have got a connection of people who come from a practice or professional managerial background. Lots of our academic staff do. Of course, professional services people can see that I've been a you know leader in the NHS, which is professional service activity. When people can recognise you, you have something that they have. There's affiliation between their experience and your experience. That's a good fit. And when you share values about what organisation could go, what should be doing, that's a good fit. I think they're the two things I'd, I'd, I'd point to. Which leads me nicely to our final question. As you know, this is a, a podcast for the Nottingham Business School. What advice might you give them? Mm. So two things. The first is something my the um, chair of governors that first arrived said to me. Obviously, I got in some sort of fairly pointless dispute with somebody in my early days. And he said to me, hmm, he said, Edward, never wrestle a pig. You'll both <laughs> get muddy and the pig might enjoy it. Um, the second one uh, was something a colleague used, what said to me. It was, it's a paper that's been written up, and I won't get into detail on it because I'm not sure I've read it actually. But someone said to me, um, "Think, think of your leadership like this. You know, your interaction like this. You're in a courtyard having a conversation with somebody, and you're in the balcony of the courtyard watching yourself having the conversation with that somebody. And if you can do both those things at once, you've got a real discipline." In what are you trying to achieve? How's it going to move you forward? And how do you make sure that what you do is appropriate and, and constructive? And it's a very difficult thing to do, but it's about discipline. So it's about having the emotional impact you want to have at the time you want to have it. And I say emotional, the rational bit of leadership is actually the easy bit. It's the emotional bit of leadership that's the hard bit. And for me, it takes real discipline. I'm, I'm, as you probably can't tell from my accent, my dad was a scouser. So very. But you are a Liverpool, Liverpool fan. Uh, sorry, Everton fan. Aren't you? <laughs> Careful, I'm an Everton fan. That's that's what gives it away. But he was he was a classic scouser, and he was the you know the, the doyen of the of the smart put down. I, it took me years to learn to stop it. And one thing I do actually is I wear a watch, and the watch if he looks at it, it says ten to twelve, which it isn't, uh, on the sixth, which it isn't. And the point of a watch is to remind me I'm at work. That's all. So you essentially wear a watch that doesn't work. Yeah, I wear a watch that doesn't work to tell me I'm at, I'm at work. Because you need to watch. You've got a phone, you know, to tell you the time. But the, what the watch tells me is you are at work and therefore you apply your work discipline to work. The other thing I never do, people have noticed this, I never drink at work. Even at social functions, at dinners, I never drink. And the reason is it starts to impact upon your discipline. And I know if I did... That certain of my other characteristics, you know, this, this like smarty pants kind of um, um, thing I got from my dad, will start to kind of leak out, and it's just no one wants to see that. It's just not nice, not helpful. <laughs> so um, I might look out for that next time. No, well, you should. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you were going to say you should, and then you feel better. No, no, you're never going to see it, Mike. There's no point. Um, well, I hope you're not going to see it. And I think you, you all, everyone knows what it is in their emotional makeup, which is probably their Achilles heel. And part of all of our tasks as leaders is to make sure we keep that in check um, to the extent that, you know, um, you know, it needs to be in check. Actually, going back to my dad, he was actually, when he was on public display, he was quite an affable, charming, upbeat human being. If I, if I get what I can do at the start of this conversation, Mike, in public from anybody, I get it from him. It's just he couldn't carry it through consistently enough. 
because he was a farmer, so he didn't have to. <sighs> Professor Edward Peck, thanks very, very much for joining us here on the Mining Business School Business Leaders Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then why not check out some of the others that are also available, including those with the IT giant, Sir Ken Elisa, the chair of the FA, Debbie Hewitt, and the former chair of Burberry, Experian Standard Chartered, Sir John Peace. The Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast is produced for Nottingham Trent University by Celtic Tiger Productions. Your presenter was Mike Sassy, and your producer was John Collins.